Chapter 13 of The Astonishing History of Troytown by Sir Arthur Thomas Quillacooch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 13 The Significance of Pomeroy's Cat and How the Men and Women of Troy Ensued After Pleasure in Boats. The historian of Troy here feels at liberty to pass over six weeks with but scanty record. During that time the Bankshire Rose bloomed over Kit's house, peered in at the windows, and found Mr. Fogo for the most part busied in peaceful carpentry, though with a mysterious trouble in his breast that at times drove him afield on venturous perambulations, or to his boat to work off by rowing his too meditative fit. From these excursions he would return tired in body but in heart eased, and resume his humdrum life tranquilly enough though Caleb was growing uneasy, and felt it necessary more than once to retire apart and have it out, as he put it, with his conscience. "'Question is,' he would repeat, "'whether I be justified in meddling with the course of nature, especially when the course of nature is as such as I approves. And supposing I bain't, further question is whether I be right in receiving one pound a week and a new set of small clothes.' This nice point in casuistry was settled for the time by his waving claim to the small clothes, and inserting in his old pair a patch of blue sea-cloth that contrasted extravagantly with the veteran stuff, so extravagantly as to compel Mr. Fogo's attention. D "'Does it never strike you,' he asked one day, as Caleb was stooping over the wood-pile, "'that the repair in your trousers, Caleb, are a trifle emphatic? Purpureus latte qui splendiat, uh, ad suita padus. I mean in the seat of your—' "'Conscience, sir,' said Caleb abruptly, some ties a bit of string round the finger to help the memory. I does it this way. Well, well I, I should have thought it more apt to assist the memory of others. Still, of course, you know best. And Mr. Fogo resumed his work, and thought no more about it. But Caleb alternated between moods of pensiveness and fussy energy for some days after. In Troy, Summer was leading on a train of events not to be classed among periodic phenomena. It stands on record, for instance— that Lou began to be played at the club, and the Admiral's weekly accounts to grow less satisfactory than in the days when he and Mrs. Buzzer were steadfast opponents of whist. That Mrs. Simpson discovered her great-uncle to have been a baronet on this earth. That Mrs. Payne had prefixed Ellicombe to her surname, and spoke of THE Ellicombe Paynes, you know. That Mr. Moggridge had been heard to speak of Sam Buzzer as a low fellow that Sam had retorted by terming the poet a conceited ass, and that Admiral Buzzer intended a picnic. To measure the importance of this last item, you must know that a Trojan picnic is no ordinary function. To begin with, it is essentially patriotic, devoted, in fact, to the cult of the Troy River, in honour of which it forms a kind of solemn procession. Undeviating tradition has fixed its goal at a sacred rock, haunted of heron and kingfisher, and wrapped around with woodland, beside a creek so tortuous as to simulate a series of enchanted lakes. Here the self-respecting Trojan, as his boat cleaves the solitude, will ask his fellows earnestly, and at regular intervals, whether they ever beheld anything more lovely, and they, in duty-bound and absolute truthfulness, will answer that they never did. It follows that a Trojan picnic demands for its success to quite a peculiar degree upon the weather but on the day of the Admiral's merrymaking this was, beyond cavil, kind. 
Four boats started from the town quay. Four boats, alas, could by this time contain the Camille foe of Troy. For everybody who was anybody had been invited, and nobody, with the exception of the Honourable Frederick, who could not leave his telescope, had refused. Sam Buzzer did not start with the rest, but was to follow later, and in his absence Mr. Moggridge paid impressive court to Mrs. Goodwin Sandys, though uneasily, for Sophia's saddened eyes were upon him. Yet everybody seemed in the best of spirits and tempers. The Admiral, after bestowing his wife in another boat, and glaring vindictively at Kit's house, where the figure of Mr. Fogo was visible on the beach, grew exceedingly jocose, and cracked his most admired jokes, including his famous dialogue with the echo just beyond Kit's house, a performance which Miss Limpany declared she had seldom heard him give with such spirit. She herself, spurred to emulation, told her favourite story, which began, "'In the great exhibition of 1851, when Her Majesty, long may she reign, partook of a public luncheon,' and contained a most diverting incident about a cherry pie." and always at decent intervals she would exclaim, "'Did you ever see anything more lovely?' to which the Admiral, as religiously, would reply, "'Really, I never did.' Indeed, the scene was, as Mrs. Goodwin Sandys in another boat observed, "'like a poet's dream,' a remark at which Mr. Muggridge blushed very much. "'I wish I could linger and describe with amorous precision the bright talk, the glories of the day, each bend and vista of the river which I have loved from childhood.' but amid the stress of events now crowding with epic vehemence on Troy, the muse must hasten. Fain would she dally over the disembarkation, the feast, the manner in which Admiral Buzzer carved the chicken pie, and his humorous allusion to the merry thought, or dwell upon the salad compounded by Mr. Moggridge, the spider that was found in it, and the conundrum composed upon that singular occurrence. Or loiter to tell how Miss Lavinia upset the claret-cup over the vicar's coat-tails, and in her confusion said it did not signify— which was very amusing. On this, and more, which she blithely discourse, did not sterner themes invite her. It happened that on this particular morning Mr. Foger had been restless beyond his wont. For a full hour he had wandered on the beach, as Caleb expressed it, backers and forwards like Boscastle Fair. He had taken up mallet and chisel, had set them down at the end of half an hour for his paint-box, and ruined a well-meaning sketch of the previous day. Had deserted this in turn for another ramble on the beach, and finally returned, with a helpless look, to Caleb, who sat whistling and splicing a rope upon the little quay. "'Hurry in mind, sir, like Pomeroy's cat,' suggested he sympathetically. "'I have no acquaintance with the animal you mention,' said his master. "'I reckon twas she has got killed by care, sir. I never know myself, but one animal has got downright put going in that way, and that were a hen.' "'A hen?' "'Yes, sir.' happened up at Pennylick the last year I stayed long with Maloya Manair. It was a regular full body, this hen. A black minorcy she were, but no egg ever laid were fuller of meat than she or good feeling. And principle. It's enough principle to stock a prayer-meeting. But I principle in a buffle-head's like a fishbone in the throat. Useful, but out of place. Well, sir, the old Manair one day bought a baker's dozen of porcelain eggs over to Summer Court Fair. Beautiful eggs they were, and you couldn't tell mum from real, except by the weight. The very next day, finding as his Manorsi were laying for a brood in the loft above the cow-shed, he takes up the true egg while the old fowl were away, and sets a porcelain egg in place of it. In course, back comes the hen, and being a daft body, as I told he, and not used to these air refinements of civilization, never doubts but twas the same as she laid. T'warn't long afore he'd a laid a six more, 
and then I sets to work to hatch them out. Naturally, after a while, the brood was all hitched out, excepting, of course, the porcelain egg. The mother didn't take no suspicion. T'were all right, only a bit stubborn. So I sat down for two days more, and did all a hen good to hatch that chick. No good, t'wouldn't budge. He never seed a fowl that hurted in mind, and never a thought of giving in. No, sir, it wasn't no way. I just cocked her head a slant, took a long stare at the cussed thing, and said, so plain as looks could say, "'Well, I've a-laid this egg, and I reckon I've got to hatch it. And if it takes me to the aluminium, I'll see you out.' Uh, "'The millennium,' corrected Mr. Fogo, who was much interested. Uh, "'Not being over-educated, sir,' said Caleb, with unconscious severity. "'That old hen, I reckon, said aluminium. But "'Never mind. I sat and sat and kept on setting, and neglected the rest of their chicks for what seeming to her was the call of duty, till one by one they all died. It was pitiful, sir, and the worst was to see her lay so much store by that egg. The old manure was for taking it away, but would have broke her heart. As twas, what with anxiety and too little food, her wore to her shadow. I see her was bound to die anyway, and one afternoon, as I was in the cowshed, I had a weakly sort of clucking overhead, and went up to look. It was too late, sir. The old hen was lying beside the egg, glazing at it in a filmy sort of way, and breathing terrible hard. When I comes, she gives a look, same as to say, I reckon I've got to go. I've been a mother to that there egg, and I'd have liked to see it through afore I went. But seemingly, it weren't ordained. And with that, there was a kind of flutter, and when I turned her over, I see her troubles were down. That foul, sir, had passed. You tell the story with such sympathy, Caleb, that I appeal to you the more readily for advice. I find it hard to concentrate my attention this morning. If I might make free to shake ye again, I should prefer any other cure. Oh, very well, sir. I have heard from trippers as come to Troy to spend the day and get drunk in another parish for variety's sake. There's a pennyworth of sea as uncommon refreshing. A, a pennyworth of sea? That's so, sir. Twelve in a boat, and a copper, and head to the boatman to rouse so far as there and back, which is cheap and empty in the price, as a chap told me. You advise me to take a row? Yes, sir. I reckon you'd best go up the river if you're going alone. Though whether you prefers the risk of meeting Admiral Busser to being turned topsy-versy outside the upper mouth is a question I leaves to you. It was a matter of taste, as Monsieur said by the yellow frog. Mr. Fergus decided to risk an encounter with the Admiral. In a few minutes he was afloat, and briskly rowing in the wake of the picnic party. But black care, that clambers aboard the sea-going galley, did not disdain a seat in the stern of Mr. Fogo's boat. She sat her down there, and would not budge for all his pulling. Neither could the smile of the clear sky woo her thence, nor the voices of the day. But as on shipboard she must still be talking to the man at the wheel, and on horseback importunately whispering to the rider from her pillion, so now she besieged the ear of Mr. Fogo, to whom her very sex was hateful. Further and further he rode, in vain attempt to shake off this incubus. Passed at some distance the rock where the picnickers had spread their meal, luckily the admiral's back was turned to the river, doubled at the next bend, ran to his boat ashore on a little patch of shingle overarched with trees, and, stepping out, sat down, to smoke a pipe. Secure from observation, he could hear the laughter of the picnickers borne melodiously through the trees, and either this, or the tobacco, chased his companion from his side. For his brow cleared, the puffs of smoke came more calmly, and before the pipe was smoked out, 
Mr. Fogger had sunk into a most agreeable fit of abstraction. He was rudely aroused by the sound of voices close at hand. Indeed, the speakers were but a few yards off, on the bank above him. Now, Mr. Fogger was the last man to desire to overhear a conversation, but the first words echoed so aptly his late musings, and struck his memory too with so deep a pang, that before he recovered it was too late. "'Geraldine! Oh, why is it?' It was a woman's voice that asked the question, though not the voice that Mr. Fogo had half expected to hear, and his very relief brought a shudder with it. "'Oh, why is it that a man and a woman cannot talk together except in lies? You ask if I am unhappy. Say what you mean. Do I hate my husband? Well, then, yes.' "'My dear Mrs. Is that frank enough?' "'Oh, yes, I have lied so consistently throughout my married life "'that I tell the truth now out of pure weariness. "'I detest him. "'Sometimes I feel that I must kill either Fred or myself, and end it all.' "'Bless my soul,' murmured Mr. Fogo, cowering more closely. "'This country teems with extraordinary people.' "'He held his breath as the deeper voice answered. "'Had I thought, stop, I know what you would say, and it is untrue. "'Be frank, as I am.' You had half-guessed my secret, and were bound to convince yourself, and why? Shall I tell you, or will you copy my candour and speak for yourself? Dead silence followed this question. After some seconds the woman's voice resumed. Ah, all men are cowards. Well, I will tell you. Your question implied yet another, and it was, Do I, hating my husband, love you? Geraldine, do you still wish that question answered? I will do you that favour also. Listen, for the life of me, I don't know. And the speaker laughed, a laugh full of amused tolerance, as though her confession had left her as careless spectator of its results. Mr. Fogo shuddered. In heaven's name, Geraldine, don't mock me. But it is true. How should I know? You have talked to me, read me your verses, and indeed I think them very beautiful. You have, with comparative propriety, because in verse, invited me to fly with thee to a desolate island in the southern sea, wherever that is, and forgetting my shame and likewise blame, while you do the same with name and fame and its laurel leaf, go to mortal grief on a coral reef. Geraldine, you are torturing me. Do I not quote correctly? My point is this. A woman will listen to talk, but she admires action. Prove that you are ready not to fly to a coral reef, but to do me one small service, and you may have another answer. Uh, name it. Mr. Fogo, peering through the bushes as one fascinated, saw an extremely beautiful woman confronting an extremely pale youth, and fancied also that he saw a curious flash of contempt pass over the woman's features as she answered, Really, unless you kill the Admiral next time he makes a pun, I do not know that just now I need such a service. By tomorrow, though, or the next day, I may think of one. Until then, she held out her hand, wait patiently, and be kind to Sophia. Mr. Mulgridge started as though stung by a snake, but, recollecting himself, imprinted a kiss upon the proffered fingers. Again Mrs. Goodwin Sandys laughed with unaffected mirth, and again the hidden witness saw that curious gleam of scorn, only now, as the young man bent his head, it was not dissembled. They were gone. Mr. Fogo sank back against the bushes, drew a long breath, and passed his hands nervously over his eyes. But though the scene had passed as a dream, 
The laugh still rang in his ears. "'It is a judgment on me,' muttered the poor man. "'A judgment! They are all alike!' Curiously enough, his next reflection appeared to contradict this view of the sex. "'An extraordinary woman! But every fresh person I meet in this place is more eccentric than the last. Uh, let me see,' he continued, checking off the list on his fingers. "'There's Caleb, and that astounding admiral, and the twins, and Tamsin.' Mr. Fogo stared very hard at the water for some seconds. "'And Tamsin?' he repeated slowly. "'Hello! My feet seem to be in the water.' "'And, bless my soul, what has become of the boat?' He might well ask. The tide had been steadily rising as he crouched under the banks, and was now lapping his boots. Worse than this, it had floated off the boat, which he had carelessly forgotten to secure, and drifted it up the river, at first under cover of the trees, afterwards more ostentatiously into mid-channel. Mr. Fogo rushed up the patch of shingle, until brought to a standstill by its sudden detention into deep water. There was no help for it. Not a soul was in sight. He divested himself rapidly of his clothes, piled them in a neat little heap beyond reach of the tide, and then, with considerable spirit, plunged into the flood and struck out in pursuit of the truant. End of chapter 13